Hello and welcome to another episode of the Juxtcast. I'm Alex Davis and I'm here with John Pither, Dominic Monroe, Thomas Taylor. Great, so uh, we have a tradition in Juxt, uh, which is uh, when somebody new joins, we thrust them onto the Juxt cast and get them to give a bit of a bio of uh, where they've been, what they're doing, and why they now find themselves at Juxt. So, Thomas Taylor, do you want to take us away? Um, sure. Uh, so, I joined Juxt in September, and previously to that, I was at University of Birmingham for five years. The first two years, I studied uh, nuclear engineering. Then I realised I didn't like nuclear engineering, so I went on to computer science. I was introduced to Jux because John did a talk at my uni. Cool. So uh, what's been going on in in Juxland, Dominic? You've you've got a new library in the works. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about it? Yeah. So it's uh, it's a new dependency injection library uh, because we don't have enough of those. Is it worth a brief recap of of the closure sphere of dependency mm. injection frameworks that we're used to now? I think the the first major one uh, was Component, um, and that made a a massive splash because it also came along with uh, Stuart Sierra's reloaded workflow at the same time. So they they sort of came hand in hand as a a nice pairing. Um, So the Clojure community, I think, was looking for this sort of workflow, like how do I work with a stateful thing and reload my code at the same time and, and things like that. And yeah, I mean, this was massive, wasn't it? In 2013, 2014, I remember a bit of a, a joke that you went to a software conference and nine out of every 10 talks was about component and dependency injection <laughs> frameworks. We'd, we'd finally figured out how to do dependency injection. So it was definitely a thing that was missing and yeah. was, a, was bridged by this component library. Yeah. So that was all based around, um, you have a map um, from keys to, com- to records and those records implemented a uh, protocol called lifecycle uh, and they would have a start method and a stop method and they would have to return an updated version of the record from those methods um, and the updated version would have to be able to call stop on it this was the first major one and this one i think that's the one i used the most it's the one that i think has had the most impact on the closure community yeah as a game changer before that uh, we just lifecycled things within the actual namespace itself mm. so you'd have death de- de- def- death for a database connection for instance yeah. or death for something else yeah. and and to be honest I don't necessarily think that you actually need all of component. Um, and I think doing deaths in a, a dev namespace is actually a reasonably good thing to do. So I, I don't think that should be doubted. The place it starts to fall down is when you have failures. Because if you have a failure halfway through, you really want to go and like either clean up or continue. And actually, if you're doing deaths in a dev namespace, that works really well. Because the code will only evaluate as far as you need to go. As long as you remember to put def once, otherwise every time you compile that namespace, well, you're yeah, defing yeah. a new thing uh, that fires off. Depends if you're doing... So it comes down to, are you refreshing or are you actually just doing a require and evaluating statements as you go? Because if, if you're just evaluating statements as you go, you'll only continue from where you need and you'll just you know, use your brain and say, ah, something after the database broke and you'll go evaluate the thing after the database. So I actually think that's a very valid approach. Yeah, it's not for me though, because my muscle memory is to do control C, control K to compile well, the namespace all the time. Oh, so. I see. And does Insider, does that actually unload it before it requires it, does it? Uh, no. I don't think so. I think it just... It just recompiles, recompiles it. it. Yeah. Oh, I see. It re everything yeah. from the yeah. top down. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. So you'd need a def once. Okay. Yeah, exactly. right, I get it. Yeah. yeah. That's a bit of a shame. You kind of want to sort of say from where my cursor is, go yeah. down. Um, so what you do in Vimland, then you don't do that? So you just eval everything that's uh, new by itself? Yeah, it's... Atomically eval functions. This might be more of my workflow than other people's. So 
the way Vim works is that you don't really, because everything is far more composable, I, uh, I have an ev- operation called avow, and then I can avow whatever I want. I can avow something completely nonsensical if I want to. I could say, avow all the code up until uh, you hit white space again, or hit avow all the code up until the character T. So I can press a character, I can do eval from where the cursor is to the end of the file. And that's just a very natural thing because I can, I can delete to the end of the file and I have a motion for saying from where I am to the end of the file. I see that Tom is vigorously sort of nodding. Yeah, you have uh, a divide in the table, I feel a bit <laughs> unsophisticated. So looking across at the Vim people with their, their ways of doing things. So I, I actually think, yeah, that, that there's a lot of value in doing defs and I, I, think, I don't think it should be underestimated either. Um, but... The second big library that made a splash was Mount. Yep. Um, Mount, it's really cool if you're quite disciplined. Uh, I think that's that's my takeaway from it. So, so do you want to give us a bit of an overview? So uh, with component, we've got protocols, this mm-hmm. lifecycle protocol. That yeah. you have to Maybe I should wrap up a little bit on component as well, that um, you use a, a function on on those records to uh, or an extra map uh, which attaches I think it attaches metadata to the system. It's some kind of uh, function of the system to decide uh, which um, components depend on each other and they'll be associated in under a particular key into the record. So that's how dependencies work there. Um, that's a really important thing to mention just before I go on to mount because mount does it very differently. So mount works by using the namespaces in Clojure as a dependency graph. That's quite interesting because instead of having a map with uh, the details explicitly written, it just relies on Clojure's ability to load namespaces in a certain order. And your own reloading tool's um, job is to reload them in the correct order, and therefore Mount never really worries about the dependency graph. It just says, I can stop because all the things before me have already been unloaded. So that's really cool. Um, But the downside of that is that because it's using namespaces and vars, the var becomes global, uh, which means you get into this, if you're not careful with how you write code, you're going to have concurrency issues uh, if you want to rebind for tests and, and or even just run your tests in parallel. I was going to uh, say, like, how do, like with uh, the Stuart CI component, you can fire up one system for dev and then one system for yeah. test and have these systems running side by side. Yeah. Can you do that with mount? There is something called a yurt, which I think looks at the namespace graph and turns it into a map. So you, hypothetically, yes but then all of your code needs to take the individual parameters. So you would still write your code as you would under component, but you've just moved the definition of your graph into the namespaces rather than the into the system map itself. And this is what I was talking about with discipline. You need to have discipline when you use mount, uh, not to just reach up for the DB var at any given time. Well, what's the advantage? I mean, we're freewheeling here, so yeah. my sort of concern with mount is that you're, you're sort of complexing the closure, namespace, topology, the setup with your component framework, your dependency uh, t- topology, and and yeah, that might give you um, some benefits. It, mm. it might be subtle, but what what's the advantage? Like, why would you do that? Well, one really nice thing that falls out of that is that you can, when you, you don't need any stop and start for your refresh, you can just refresh. And it, when the def state in mount is run, it will just, stop and start. Like when you re-evaluate, it stops and starts the old version. It's kind of like a, an advanced version of Def Once where it knows about its lifecycle. So it actually fits very nicely into a REPL workflow. I mean, going at one step further, the REPL workflow is absolutely fantastic with Mount because you can always, the problem with component is that you, 
or or anything structured like that is that you have to have this system var and you have to pull out the right variables out of it and you have to you know select keys and whatever to pass it around your system and people put stuff into it and whatever with mount you can just sort of take the code that's referring to the db and just run it because it's already pointing at a var that's been started um so it that works like it just fits very naturally in that sense because vars are very easy to reference um so that uh, that's a very nice part of mounts okay that's interesting so you don't have to pass these references around these uh, you yeah. don't have to pass your dependencies around you can just point at a var yeah okay and cool i think if you're disciplined that can work really really well because you can as long as you only refer to those vars in your um in your boundaries and, and boundaries are a bit abstract and, and that's sort of intentional because I think I'm a bit vague on where you should and where you shouldn't refer to these vars. And I think it's a per team decision. You sort of say, what's my sensitivity to this? Um, but yeah, I, I think it can work really well. The downside, you know, even with those upsides, I think the big downside is that the common workflow for closure people is to run your tests at the same time. And that's just, you can't do that because you... you because you're using vars, so you, you have the var bound twice. So whereas, yep. because systems are reified in component, and you can pass them around and have as many of them as you want, you could map over them if you really wanted to. You can have you know 20 test systems running at the same time. With mount, you can only have one, you know, namespaces are singletons, you can only have one of them in a JVM. So I believe the author of mount has talked several times about his workflow. His workflow is to have a second JVM running. Um, Okay, that may or may not work for you, depending on you know if you want to if a test fails and you want to mm. avail some code for it, you're in a bit more trouble. So, yeah, yeah, it's a bit funky. Uh, with component, you can uh, define your system. You can specify the components that go into that system, mm -hmm. and that system is a map. And then you can do things to that map. You can a sock in. You can change the system map before you fire it up. So it's got that declarative nature to it. Do you have that amount if the dependencies, uh, the definition of those kind of spread around the code, like this thing is using this this var, it's difficult for me to see or to mm. manipulate that configuration? Yeah. I, I think I think it might be possible. I think you can do, uh, like, only start these ones. So mount does have some functions for referring to the vars and saying, like, start up, but only start these ones uh, and things like that. Or swap this one out or something. Yeah, there is some something where you can actually swap them out as well. Um, I don't know mount in that much detail because I've never used it in anger on a project um, but I believe that kind of facility is there and, and that actually might even be a really nice thing to use when you're debugging your tests so it might be that you just at your repo you say actually go swap out the HTTP server for this one and swap out the handler for that one and then you you we do that all the time yeah. uh, with component. Uh, you know, we just say, "Well, I want to swap out this real HTTP server with a stub," mm. and then record the interactions. I mean, more in the context of doing it at a REPL session, so on a very interactive one-off basis. Um, I think that's probably a bit more natural with Mount to just go and say, "Like, oh, go swap these two two around," rather than um, in component where you would probably start a whole new system or stop the system there and go to change the code. Uh, that's more of a workflow thing. But I, I think mount is really nice at a REPL. Um, so one's optimized towards the REPL. Yeah. And the other one is optimized towards what sort of the programmatic nature writing test that. Yeah. That, it, it, it's really a case of reifying your system into data and, and being able to hold it very concretely. Um, and for example, with mount, you can't manipulate your system with assertion disoce. You have to use the mount functions for saying start these vars rather than than uh, select keys. So I'm, I'm guessing this is where this is where the opportunity or this is where the gap lies that can be filled with a Dominic 
type library no. where on, on the one hand you have your uh, you can hold your system you you know you can configure it you can see it you can touch you can feel it but on the other hand it's not as sort of intuitive and ingrained mm. to the repler's mount enter something new and exciting what is it interestingly i haven't actually tried to target that middle space um, I think it. I think it'd be really interesting for someone to do that. But um, the library I've been working on is definitely leaning more towards the um, component side of things. Okay. Um, it's going into my library is is probably premature without mentioning Integrant. So Integrant was really. Integrant has made a splash as well. Um, it's the first library in a while in the dependency injection to do so. It's been a couple of years since we've seen anything else. Um, and I think the the thing that people really liked about it was that it was multi-methods rather than records. I think people are just a bit... The problem with records uh, in Component is that you can't just pass around a DB, right? So you've got this JDBC connection. You can't just pass it around. You've got a record, and you need to take the DB out of it and then pass that around. So you've got all this code that is constantly wrapping and unwrapping and, yeah. and passing things around. Yeah, that's fair. So the way Integrant solved this was by saying that your the key in your system maps to something. So he tied uh, the name. This is uh, James, James Reeves. Reeves yeah. Yep. yeah, yeah, James Reeves' library. To Weaves Jester. Yes. Um, they tied um, the, the name in your component system to some kind of implementation. Yep. And by doing that, uh, the implementation of the lifecycle methods can be moved into a multi-method, yep. which then means that your multi-method could just return a DB value which is very nice from the perspective of you, all of this sort of wrapping and unwrapping just disappears. Yep. And there's this common thing in component systems where you forget to return the record itself and you return something else and then stop breaks and you're, you're in a horrible position and you're just stuck. Yep. Um, so, and, I, and in defense of component, I think it, this stuff is actually work, is something you can work around, but you have to do a closure anti-pattern to achieve it. So there is a rule, which is that you should not, unless you own either the protocol or the object, you should not extend, or, or a class, I should say, unless you ex own both the protocol and the class, you should not, either, sorry, not both. <laughs> Third time's a charm. Yeah. <laughs> just, just start again. Yeah, I am. Um, unless you own the class and the protocol, you shouldn't extend them to each other. So Unless you own class or the protocol. Or the protocol, yes, not and. I've done it again. <laughs> <laughs> so unless you own either the class or the protocol, you shouldn't extend them to, either, to each other. That, so that means that uh, you shouldn't really take, for example, the component lifecycle protocol and extend it to a JDBC connection because you don't own either of those. Why? Why shouldn't you do that? Because doing that requires, or well, A, you're making a decision for everyone that you don't really have the ownership to make. And the other is that you end up... For everybody, but it's your, yeah, it's your, code. It's your program. Not if you're writing a library. Okay. But um, then it'd be a bit of a weird library to have a dependency injection framework inside of it doing stuff. So there's a lot of uh, libraries out there, for example, that just wrap Hikari CP or something like that. So this is where you might see code like that in, a, in that kind of a library, where they're trying to say that JDBC connections, it's sort of a glue library, an integration library. What As you, a rule of thumb, like if it's your yeah. own code base and you're like the end user, you're the, the sort of outer rim of that stack, then you might be yeah, okay uh, yeah. to do this, it might be safe. But yeah. if you're like, yeah. Generally, yeah, yeah, it's a good thing to say. I think more people should be aware of this. You shouldn't yep. really um, tie any libraries to a particular dependency injection. And I think 
all of the libraries have been very clear about this from day one that they they mm. shouldn't be wrapped in libraries. They should it should be a separate thing to wrap it. Okay. But the other reason you shouldn't do it um, is that you end up with this kind of awkward code where you have to require a namespace for side effects. And every time I've seen that, it's it's always ended up as a debate, for starters, because someone's namespace cleaning thing can't detect that you're requiring for names uh, for side effects. But I also think it's just a bit it's a bit awkward and inconvenient to remember to do that you're sort of you're requiring these namespaces for global side effects. That's not very closurey. Um, it, it just feels a bit unnatural to me. I kind of like, like, one way I've seen this worked around is to do the extend protocol in a function and then calling that function from somewhere. But you, you also end up with little things like you require it in one place and it just so happens to work in another namespace because of the particular ordering on that day of the week or that mm. JVM. Mm. Um, but then when you go and load that namespace in isolation, because that namespace doesn't explicitly require the protocol to make the global mutation happen it doesn't work mm. so I, I found that in system in programs that this just becomes kind of an awkward it just becomes a bit of a rough point to to do that yep. uh, it's just not very natural closure and it's because there's not really a there's no mechanism you can really do for this which is to say like these things that i do not own they should do this okay. when they're together so this is the dominic munro gap of which a new component framework is gonna yeah so enter uh, Integrant also has this problem with uh, multi-methods because it has to require a namespace to have the side effect of loading that multi-method. Yeah. Because it, they're a global registry as well. Yeah, um, this is global registry problem. Yeah, yeah. So the way I solved this in my library was to use uh, symbols and vars instead of, um, instead of records or keywords. So there's no special wrapping and you can always tie a symbol back to the function it refers yeah. to. So... And this also has the secondary side effect of requiring no wrappers at all. Yeah. There is no, there is no, um, for example, there's, there's libraries for integrant to wrap it around Hikari CP, the same thing for component. There's nothing like that to really write for my library because you just refer to the start function of Hikari CP and the stop is the stop function in Hikari CP. And you just refer to it either by a symbol and that's supported because you probably want to create your system in Eden and, and do like switch out systems uh, based on a different Eden file or using some yep. like yep. Um So by using a symbol, I can just require and resolve that and, and load it at runtime. Is it a bit more extra boilerplate because now you have to define the start and, and the start and stop, but then it, it, it sort of points at where they actually exist in the code. Whereas I, with uh, Integrant, it's all in the same place. So I found that it's actually less typing uh, overall um, and less boilerplate because I find, and, and it, it does depend on the way you shape your system. So if you happen to shape your system so that everything is perfectly, you have a very small system and only your stateful things are really in there and you have some kind of bag of stuff at some point. So that, that's what you end up with. Um, you, you, you can def, uh, group the things that go into a system into two categories basically. One is something that is stateful and you really only want to create once. So something like a HTTP server is a really good example because it takes up a physical place on your machine. It takes up a port. You can't just run millions of HTTP servers because you will run out of ports. And you, know, you can't run the same HTTP server with the same configuration several times because it takes up a, a port and there's only one of those ports. So it's sort of a locking mechanism. Um, and then things that just consume that. And th those things that consume that or are run by that tend to not have a life cycle of their own, particularly not a stop one. So 
they they just take a dependency on the da database connection, for example, which you only want to have a few of because you don't want to exhaust the TCP stack on your machine or something like that. So you you really want to just consume those so you don't have a stop. Now, the other way of designing systems is that so you go very granular and you say you're very explicit about every handler in your system defines exactly what it requires. And this is really good for reuse and it makes the connections between things very explicit. So you can look at a thing and you say, like, you know that it's only using these two things. It's not it's not ending up with a, a database that it doesn't use. Yep. And you're not looking at it thinking, why has this got a database and what's it doing with it? And is it passing it to something later, which is perhaps potentially using the database and potentially behaving differently based on that? You can have a very clear idea then of what something takes. And it's very well defined because it's in your system. So if you do that, you'll quickly find that you have a lot of components where you're defining a start for in integrant and a start and and a stop for in component that does nothing, um, and that's that's ends up quite pointless. Um, and it just it, it's really you end up with a def method in integrant that's three lines of code, and you you end up writing a lot of these. Um, whereas with with my library, because you're just referring to the var directly, you end up with one line of code. Yeah. I know it's a it's a small difference really, but mm. it's it's uh, well, not it, having that wrapping. Is it just one line? Is it? It's not like just one line there because you're, if you're just pointing directly at the method, you also don't have to make like that wrapper namespace. So you're also reducing yeah. the. So it's not just two less lines. It's like four less lines and a less extra file. It just mm. like even I just using Integrant. So I, the Jux website uses Integrant as a framework, and just um, I, I I came across a use case today where I thought, wow, if I was just using. Um, Dom's library. I would have done this in one line, but I was so um, I've started. Uh, I use I've tried been using um, Conjure, which is an alternative um, Vim plugin for Closure, alternative to Fireplace. That is, and in order, it doesn't use a nREPL like a network REPL like a normal one. It uses a a, a P REPL. I can't remember what it's a protocol REPL something like that. No, I actually don't know what P stands for in that context. It's sort of a structured Eden yeah, based REPL. It, yeah, so it gives you back like a, a map of um, like a, what what came out of it, what the side effects were, all that all that rubbish. But um, it, there's not an easy way in order to start a P REPL using a variable mm -hmm. port. So I was creating multiple um, P REPLs, but I couldn't. I I only had the way of setting it up with a static port. And so there's a, another library called um, Propyl, written by Osa... Oliver Cal uh, Caldwell. Thank you. I knew you'd know that. <laughs> but there's... Um, in order to start a prepl like that, you just literally um, run the methods like prepl.course.start.exclamation.mark. Um, mm. well, but there's no integrant thing so that. So I literally spent like about I don't know, five minutes writing a... A, a quick wrapper just with the init call for that and then just pointing it to that and then doing all this rubbish and i was like literally if if i was using um whatever this library will eventually be called um i could have just put one line in referring to that library and be done with it like it seems a lot easier to hook in yeah. other things if you're not if you're literally just calling a start method on them so yeah cool. there's there's two use cases i guess so there's things where we're talking about your own code and it so in an application and in an application, you already have the namespace, so there's no extra namespace that you're creating. But if you're wrapping, if you're calling into library code, so Jetty Web Server or Hikari for a, a connection ball or something like that, you end up creating these namespaces that act as uh, thin veneers. Yeah. And and it just adds more redirection. 
Mm. When like really all we re- really want to know when I look at the Jetty component is it's going to call ring.jetty slash run Jetty. I don't really care. I don't want to know that there's some, well, if there is something funky going on where I'm going through some special start function for whatever reason, that should like that can be explicit and that can be a special case. But most yeah. of the time I want to know, oh, I'm dealing with Akari. I know what that is. I don't have to go look that up. And I don't have to think now. I can just shortcut that whole thing. That sounds great. Uh, what would this library be called? Well, it's the problem is at Jux we have a rule. Mm. So libraries have to have a four-letter name. Yep. And we sort of we all have to agree on that name. It has to be a good name. So already we've you know restricted the pool of names to those that are four letters, which is not a big pool already. Um, and then you have to try and find a word that doesn't have so many meanings and so many negative connotations that it still holds up. So, for example, we've completely banned anything with a nautical theme. So I had this great, I really liked the, the word hull, because I thought, you know, the hull of a ship, it's actually the framework of the ship that, that holds I, everything I up. I like hull. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, people, you know, down with the ship, taking on water, you know. Oh, that's a bit of a stretch, I think. That's a bit of a stretch. Yeah. <laughs> we need I mean, to make the case for hull. It's connotations for the place as well. Is hull known for a good yeah. library? <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's a lot worse than your ship connotation. Yeah. Like, just the thought of going to a library in hull. It's just... <laughs> Oh yeah, so, and then I had Glue, I thought Glue was a, a good name, and no, I still might give it Glue. Glue. That's not good. Yeah, and there's also, though that, you know, you do have a dependency on Glue if you sniff Glue, so maybe that works. Oh! <laughs> yeah, but you don't inject it. And you no. get high, which <laughs> yeah. is the other name that yeah. you're putting forward. Yeah. Anyway, so before uh, we come up with a name for Dominic's new library, uh, Instagrant is the dependency injection framework of the week. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready? One two three dependency, dependency injection, injection framework, framework of the week is integrant well done integrant why isn't it dominic's new library because it's not out yet we don't a have name. a name for it oh so we're gonna actually come back to dependency injection library of the week when dominic's library sh- is announced that's of a, course that's a great idea yeah we should definitely do that <laughs> great okay well that wraps up this uh edition of the juxt cast uh thank you to everyone uh that is listening and thank you to the people around this table Cheers. Goodbye. Goodbye.